Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 24th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about Usain Bolt versus Justin Gatlin in the 100 meters of the track and field world championships, and whether it was a battle of good versus evil in the sport of dudes running very fast over short distances. We'll also discuss the fallout from the sexual assault conviction of Baylor football player Sam Awachu, and if coach Art Bryles should lose his job. We'll also look at the place of religion in sports with Houston Texans running back Arian Foster declaring his atheism. You got to declare your atheism when you're on the line of scrimmage. Early. Right. So the other team has a chance to match up. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. With us from New York is the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. And Mike Pesca, we were just discussing prior to hitting the record button, athletics versus track and field and other parts of the world. They would call it the athletics mm-hmm. world championships. What do you how do you feel about that? I think that athletics are like uh, it, it's odd because it's backwards where the Americans use a two word phrase sort of like knots and crosses, which is what we call the tic-tac-toe. So, OK, mm-hmm. let, let's I'll go in order. Um, I prefer 
tic-tac-toe to crots, cro- knots and crots. I, um, I keep wanting to say crots and knotses. <laughs> <laughs> so I prefer tic-tac-toe to crot to, oh God, to knots and crosses. I prefer shoots and ladders to snakes and ladders. I mean, that mm-hmm. is way too upsetting for a child. But, but I prefer aluminum to aluminum. So I prefer track and field to athletics. Sticking with the athletics. games, do you prefer Cluedo to Clue? What's Cluedo? Cluedo is Clue. What? The, the board like game? Like Inspector Cluedo? Professor Plum? Yeah. Miss yeah, Marple? They, they call it no, Cluedo. No Cluedo. My question about track and field is if there's ever just been field. Yeah. Like we're, we're looking live mm. at the field championships. We're going to have a lot of field out there today. Well, some of the best field that you've ever seen. Well, it is the IAAF, right? It's the Athletics Federations, the yeah. International yeah, Association but... of Athletics Federations. Is there a separate International Association of Field Federations? Do you think Field Yates participated in track or field in college? I think it's time to separate track from field. I think field is getting short shrifted. Field, field. It needs to break out on its own. Feel the field. (laughs) That's a good good, uh, slogan. Our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week is kind of hard to explain, but it involves (laughs) the Atlanta Falcons website, The Falcoholic, and it's something that I was bullied into. Something like a collaborative afterball. It'll be fun. It'll be exciting. Uh, it's an afterball with the benefits, an afterball a toi, as it were. Uh, to hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, you should sign up for Slate Plus, and the URL is slate.com slash hangupplus. And you should also know that you can get a free two-week trial at that same URL, slate.com slash hangupplus. You should also know that Cluedo is a play on Clue and Ludo, Latin for I play. Okay, mm-hmm. moving along. Uh, you're a Cluedologist. So it was Cluedo before it was Clue. It was became Clue for the yeah. American audience, which couldn't understand the dough. Do you well, think, I support you think international change. audiences understand the dough. No, yeah. <laughs> I support changing Cluedo to Clue. I do not support changing the madness of King George II to the madness of King George because Americans would have thought it was a sequel that they didn't see the first part to. That said, it's done. There's nothing we could do. King George II: The Apocalypse. <laughs> this uh, time, it's colonial. <laughs> it was in Beijing in 2008, he says, moving on, where Usain Bolt first became a world superstar, winning the first three of his six Olympic gold medals, cruising to victory in a record time of 9.69 seconds in the 100 meters, even while preening and strutting through the last quarter of the race. That was the one where he kind of just turned sideways for the last quarter. That was not to... aerodynamically smart. No, it wasn't, but it was a world record because that dude is very fast. Could have been even more world recordy. Seven years later, the now 29-year-old Bolt came back to China for the World Championships. He's now older. He's slower. He's nowhere close to his form from 2008 or 2009 when he set the ridiculous world record of 9.58 in the 100 or in 2012 when he swept the 100 and 200 for the second consecutive Olympics. Bolt's main rival is American Justin Gatlin. He had a season best time uh, this season of 9.74 seconds. Going into this weekend, that's much better than Bolt's pedestrian, at least for him, 9.87. If Bolt is aging, then Gatlin is already ancient for a sprinter at 33 years old. Gatlin seems to be getting better with age, which is cause for suspicion, given that he was suspended for four years between 06 and 2010 after testing positive for testosterone. And so this race was billed as good versus evil, clean versus dirty. And with that preamble, here is the race. And listen closely because it's going to be over in less than 10 seconds. 
The raw power of Gatton explodes out of the blocks. Bolt has got away better this time. Bolt is coming through, but Gatton's powering away. Can Bolt get there? I think he can. Bolt reigns supreme. That via Eurosport is the sound of one guy beating another guy by one one hundredth of a second. Nine point seven nine to 9.8. It was one of Gatlin's slower times of the season, slower even than the 9.77 he ran in the semis when he didn't appear to be trying. It was Bolt's fastest of the season. So, Mike, I guess this means that we now have scientific proof that cheating is bad. Right. right. And that even no matter how much you cheat, you can't beat the man who hasn't cheated or mm, quite possibly hasn't been caught cheating. Gatlin, the way the uh, Americans deal with this is kind of to ignore it. I Was this on American television? I searched for it. I could not find yeah, it. Yeah, it was on NBC on tape delay in oh, the afternoon because tr- it was in China. NBC loves to tape delay. Yeah, they love to tape it. They didn't hype it too much. I tuned in when I thought it might be on a tape delay. I got some beach volleyball. I understand why that's better for ratings. I guess also because they knew the result. You're not going to hype it too much. But man, do the BBC go crazy. There was, I guess it's the perfect amalgam of you've got an American who is apparently evil. You've got a member of the Commonwealth who is a great champion. You've got some easy moralizing to do. And you also can allow yourself the opportunity to say, as this BBC article that I read said, now painting Justin Gatlin as purely evil has been overdone. But they're the ones doing it. Like in this headline from Tom Fordyce, chief sports writer, BBC Sport, Usain Bolt delivers his greatest miracle in beating Justin Gatlin. Can't be a miracle if you've done it every single time you've tried. And he did it by one one hundredth of a second. That's why it's more of a miracle. Miraculous. Miraculous. The miracle was that Gatlin slowed down. It wasn't that Bolt ran a particularly fast time for him. Gatlin tied up pretty visibly in the last third or so of the race. And this story and the way it's been talked about would have been completely different if he had ran what was just a typical race for him. Ross Tucker, science of sport guy, South African, wrote a really good piece a few months ago about Justin Gatlin. And he wrote that in the case of Gatlin, you have an athlete at 33 running faster than he did at 24, ostensibly without the benefit of steroids. And he continued, the Gatlin is an incredible dilemma. Set aside your preconceived notions for a brief moment and imagine the Gatlin actually is innocent now. What can he possibly do to convince a skeptical public? The answer is nothing short of slowing down and losing. Well, now he's he's slowed down and lost, and I don't think that's going to do it. Everybody still thinks Justin Gatlin's a cheater. He didn't slow down that much. And in fact, uh, Bolt did run. What for him of late was a great race, 9.79, a very fast time. Um, And the, the science behind this is what is really interesting, I think. And the science says that Look, what just Justin Gatlin has done, basically run faster and faster as he's gotten older and older into his 30s, is really unprecedented. I mean, excluding the fact that there was a 39-year-old runner, Kim Collins, in that race as well, um, who's also been putting up, you know, 10 second times, but continuing to do it into his 30s, late 30s. Um, but what we see is this, is that, that he is an outlier. And the question is, how is this possible? He had a four year ban. So it is possible Tucker and other scientists have posited that you get some benefit from not having 
competed for a period of time. You sort of delay your aging process by taking time off. Because he didn't race for four years because he, he was banned. <laughs> Correct. The, the A-Rod effect. The A-Rod effect. And then the second part of it, though, and the more interesting part, is the, are the scientific effects of his having doped earlier. And there's an increasing belief among sports scientists that those benefits linger for years so that someone like Justin Gatlin could still be gaining a competitive advantage from the doping that he did before he was caught in the mid-2000s. And the third part here is the, the other unknown among track athletes is the scientific changes in, in, in doping itself, micro-dosing, in order to gain a benefit that isn't detectable. So there are all kinds of possibilities here to explain what Justin Gatlin is doing. Unfortunately, none of them are as simple as, wow, he must be training really hard as he gets older. Well, Tucker also noted, um, I think very astutely, that Gatlin has three strikes against him. First is that he's a former doper. Second is that he's dominating a historically doped event. And third, it's that he's running faster than he was when he was found to be doping. And so, you know, in any sport, it's impossible for an athlete to prove a negative, to say, I'm not doing it and to have people believe him. But Justin Gatlin is probably the least believable athlete in any sport right now. At the same time, you say that Gatlin is an outlier, Stefan. Usain Bolt is an outlier. Sure. I mean, he's the biggest outlier of in maybe the history of sprinting, um, you know, running a 9.58, a time that 10 years ago we would have thought was absurd that anybody could run it. And it's possible that Bolt is doping. He's never tested positive. He's never even, you know, been linked to any sketchy doctors, particularly. The Jamaican anti-doping program is notorious for being mm -hmm. terrible and having absolutely no incentive for catching its athletes. But if it does seem wrong to say, oh, Gatlin's running times that are faster than anyone ever his age. Well, kind of by definition, if you're at the top of the sport, you're right now, you're going to be running times that are faster than anyone's run them before. Right. right? So that doesn't yeah. prove anything. Right. It seems like a roundabout way of saying a 30, you know, pick the upper limit. A 36-year-old simply cannot be the best at running the 100 because that would mean he's running times faster as he's getting older. And why can't he be? The, though uh, you have laid out... Well, why he can't be is because history shows us that that's not what happens. I yeah, mean, but history, history shows showed us that, that you can't run as fast can't... as Bolt ran, right? No, yes. Bolt ran it at 20, what, 3, 22, 23. And history shows us that the fastest times that have been run in history have been run by runners under the age of 27, 28. Could I ask you a question? Does history show us that more or does history show us more that the Jamaicans are almost certainly doping? That's a good That's, that's a, a great question. question. It's also... In any sport, what's happened in the past is no, you know, guarantee of future results. You know, Katie Ledecky, history shows that you can't mm -hmm. swim as fast as she can. Does that mean that she's doping? Maybe right. she, maybe she is. I don't think that she is, but mm -hmm. you can't. That's the problem that these sports have: is that every time someone does something amazing. If you go by, well, history says you can't do this, then you automatically assume that they're dopers. And with Gatlin, you bring in the fact that he he was a doper. He was a doper, <laughs> and that's why he's the least believable athlete in history. But it it just makes it hard for these sports to have anything resembling a 
you know, shining moment. Absolutely. And the more we learn about how the science of doping and the science of testing works, the more suspicious we become. And then when we take the data, which is quite easy to do, the International Track Federation has tons of data on its website. Uh, Roger Pilkey, um, environmental studies professor at the University of Colorado, who's done work on governance of FIFA and other science-related issues in sports, he put together a table after reading Ross Tucker's piece of the times that the top, what is it, nine or 10 sprinters have run by age. And it's really illuminating just to look at this chart and see how times tend to increase for these athletes. So the more data we have, the more suspicious we become. See, if I were running an East German type uh, type sport cheating conglomerate, what I would do is take the promising youngsters, dope them, don't run them for five years, and then we see the lingering effects of dope in their system when they hit the circuit at, you know, 20-something. Now, if I were a real uh, oppressive, overburdensome dad, I'd do that to my kid too, but he's not fast to begin with. One last thing, this should have been in prime time. I mean, this is this event is in the in the special feed that you sent me. I showed it to my kids. It takes ten seconds. Everyone can understand it. It doesn't matter that the American has this cloud over him. For track and field, or track or field or athletics to get any sort of traction or athletics shun, you got to show this stuff. And I think it goes back to the Nick Simmons conversation that we had, where NBC owns it and no one else has it. It should just be a much bigger deal it's a shame that this is one of this is such a great sport and these meets are so interesting and it's just that it's such a niche i don't understand it in the united states except it's you know part of this uh media conglomerates empire well it's also not a a every four year ending in a in a in an even number um next year we will be flooded with the morality play of gatlin versus bolt and we will be flooded with conversations it'll be, about it'll be more time doping. zone appropriate and it will be American more viewers. time zone appropriate so for all of the whinging about you know how this helps define sport i think tim laden put it really well in a piece that he wrote for si you know the, whether it's a morality of play or not look we're going to turn it into a morality play people are like you said mike the bbc and headline writers are going to turn it into a morality play um it is just guys trying to run and we're left to sort of decipher the the reality of it right on friday a texas judge sentenced Sam Awachu to 180 days in county jail, 10 years of felony probation after the former Baylor football player who never played a down for Baylor after transferring there from Boise State was convicted of the sexual assault of another Baylor student. The woman testified that she was screaming stop and no as he assaulted her. And when it was over, Awachu said, this isn't rape. Awachu's girlfriend from when he played at Boise State also testified, according to ESPN's Mark Schlebaugh, that Uwachu punched her in the head several times, choked her, physically restrained her from leaving, and had a reputation for having a violent temper. Baylor coach Art Bryles and Chris Peterson, who's now the coach at the University of Washington, was formerly at Boise State, are now disputing what Bryles was told before Uwachu came to Waco. Bryles says all he heard was that Uwachu was homesick. Peterson says he thoroughly apprised Coach Browse of the circumstances surrounding the player's disciplinary record and dismissal. No matter who you believe, it's clear that both programs tried and for a long time succeeded in keeping Awachu's violent behavior quiet. 
all Peterson said when explaining why Iwachi wasn't playing for Boise was he's just handling some personal stuff. While Baylor never really explained why Iwachi didn't suit up, defensive coordinator Phil Bennett said as recently as a couple months ago, he was, quote, a guy we're expecting back. Charlie Pierce, uh, Stefan, wrote a column for Granlin that was published on Monday that said, uh, in part, in the case of Sam Iwachi, we have Art Bryles trying to make Chris Peterson the fall guy and vice versa in a pathetic public relations brawl over sh who should have told whom about what, which is a good point. But it also seems to me like we should be talking about whose decision it was to not only allow this guy on the Baylor football team, but allow him on campus, right? Right. To not encourage the administration to investigate, to not take whatever evidence anyone might have had to other authorities outside of campus, if that were necessary. I mean, you've got a lot of ass covering going on here. And once again, what you end up with is the sort of sanctimony of the football program trying to demonstrate that it is above board and doing things the right way. Texas Monthly ran a story last week uh, during the trial that included one of the most damning things you'll ever read coming out of the mouth of, of, of a college football coach saying that he was really proud of the way Baylor handled uh, it's handled Sam Wachu. Good stuff. Programs doing it the right way. And then the, the details of what Awachu was alleged and now convicted to have done emerged. Bryles does not look very good here. No one looks very good here. You know that there's a huge screw up when there's a violation of Coach Omerta, which is what happened. But yeah. it was sort of forced on Peterson because, you know, this guy is such a, I watch you, such a bad guy that there needed to be an explanation. And unless he raised red flags, he was making other students unsafe, right? So it's not just a question of, oh, I didn't help a fellow coach with his recruiting or I didn't, you know, disclose an injury or whatever. It's like, if something happens with a watchu if a watchu assaults another person on campus then that does redound back to peterson so that's one of the reasons he had to say it and also it seems like he was being lied about like we could all brush mm -hmm. aside oh you know it doesn't what doesn't matter if he disclosed and we could also well it's not brushing aside it is a better question to say hey guess what these aren't just football teams little known fact it's a college community right we only we only recognize this during the uh, 18 seconds we see the student section or when one of them gets raped that's when we realize this but yeah it's a college community supposedly a very Christian community, it's, you know, it's just ridiculous. Well, and I think what, what's happening with Chris Peterson was that he feels like they, in the end, did do the right thing. They dismissed him. They kicked the kid out. You know, whether or not he could have been prosecuted for what happened in, in Boise is not clear. Obviously, he was not. Um, you know, from Chris Peterson's perspective, he was defending the fact that he believes he did the right thing. They kicked him off the team. He was dismissed from school, and he says he informed another college coach that this kid had serious problems and apparently went into detail about what the domestic violence issues were with Awachu at Boise State. So Peterson, yeah, is covering his ass, but he's also defending his own integrity and that he actually believes that they handled this the right way. So Diana Moskowitz in uh, Deadspin made the point that all this wouldn't have come to light, she wrote, unless the 
county district attorney's office in Waco decided to prosecute this guy. And that is a, an important thing to remember. And also Diana Moskowitz of Deadspin and also the writers for Texas Monthly, Jessica Luther and Dan Solomon, they brought attention to this case. Nobody and, and Moskowitz wrote about this last week before all the details came out. This was being actively suppressed at all levels. There was University, a gag order. Legal and court gag orders. Yeah. And you could totally imagine Police. a scenario. We've we've talked about these scenarios before where the district attorney's office didn't do anything. And when you look at the evidence in this case, the her testimony, but also the fact that she went to the hospital the next day and there was a rape kit done and there was evidence of sexual assault. The fact that Baylor claimed to do an investigation and both stories, the Texas Monthly story and the Deadspin story detail, what a horrible, horrible, horrible investigation this was that they didn't look at evidence that the woman, you know, at the time, you know, the day that she was interviewed by the school, she didn't happen to have her medical report with her and they just never asked for it again. They, they, they considered a polygraph test that Awachu's lawyers had had done. And so this just, to me, just reveals how important it is that A, journalists cover these stories and B, that, you know, district attorney's offices, whatever kind of local law enforcement, there just has to be the assumption that schools are going to do a bad job. And in Baylor's case, it seems like they did to me, it seems like they did a bad job on purpose. But even if it was just insufficient, even if, you know, he, sh Bryle should have known, or even if the school should have done better, I think the assumption now needs to be made that schools are not going to be honest brokers and well, these sorts of things. This argument's been made apart from sports on campuses, that universities are completely ill-equipped to investigate allegations of sexual assault on campus. But then when you throw in, when you add to the mix, the fact that this is an aspirational Division One football school now that has had problems in the past, you know, go back a decade ago to the murder of one basketball player by another at Baylor and the subsequent cover-up by the coach at the time. Dave uh, Bliss. Dave Bliss. And then you clearly, you know, and, and you understand that the depiction of campus athletic departments and their desire to cover up and not be honest about the behavior of athletes that will negatively impact the school and its fundraising abilities and its fan base is is enormous. You know, less than 20 years ago, dancing wasn't allowed at Baylor. No. Uh, the president of Baylor is Ken Starr, and you might remember him from his Inspector Javert role in the Clinton impeachment. But just as we said that, hey, let's forget for a second, let's put aside for a second, this is football. What about college? I think that point that you guys made it. Just want to underscore it again: the lack of uh, real prosecutions by colleges, also the willingness of local law enforcement to defer to these horrible mm -hmm. prosecutions at the original place. It would seem there hasn't been as much investigation, but at Boise, certainly at Waco. I mean, maybe we could use the fact that it's football, and that's the only reason anyone cares, and why this is an embarrassment, and why people jump on this, and you could point your finger at guys who are held up as uh, leaders in the community, like Art Bryles. But man, this is, just, this is just such a societal shame. So, Stefan, you mentioned uh, Baylor basketball player Carlton Dotson 
murdering a teammate, Patrick Dennehy. And that was a crime just so horrible and Baroque. And the cover-up was so horrible and Baroque by the basketball coach, Dave Bliss, that just everyone talked about it. It was covered everywhere. Um, but the Texas Monthly story mentions uh, the recent one it, just in kind of a paragraph that there was another football player at Baylor a couple years ago named Tevin Elliott, who's now in prison for 20 years for twice sexually assaulting another Baylor student in 2012. During the trial, two other women testified that Elliott had assaulted them. A fourth accused him but was not called to testify. My editor, Foghorn, went off when I saw this. It would shock me if something didn't come out about this case this week, about what our Browse knew about it, about how the football program handled it. In the Texas Monthly story, um, the victim's mother is quoted as saying, the school was not helpful in guiding her daughter. So again, this call, this hammering this point, the importance of journalism, we're talking about the Dennehy Dotson thing, and rightfully so. We should be talking about the Tevin Elliott mm -hmm. thing, but it just hasn't been written about. It didn't become national news. And now with the Watch You story, people are going to look at it, and there's going to be um, an assessment of whether there's a pattern here and whether Art Bryles is full of shit when he talks about how proud he is of the program and the administration. But there are just so many examples. Like I'm, as everyone knows, who's listened to this podcast, I'm an obsessive LSU football fan. All sorts of, of criminal behavior by LSU football players over the mm -hmm. last decade or so. And just the ones that get coverage, it's the star players or there's some like kind of reason that it becomes a national story. Jameis Winston. There's a guy named Javante DeMond, who is a junior college transfer at LSU now, offensive lineman, allegedly choke slammed his girlfriend a few months ago. Charges still pending, um, hasn't been, you know, determined what's going to happen there. Les Miles led him back on the team saying, you know, we're going to let the process play out. He's in a he's in position to compete to play. Miles said, "We're letting the disposition of whatever entanglement he's involved in run its course. He's not suspended. If this was a st the starting quarterback, if this was at Florida State, because you know rightfully Florida State has gotten a lot of attention, we just need to be conscious as consumers of media that there's all sorts of stuff like this going on, and that we're picking and choosing mm -hmm. as journalists or as." consumers of journalism. We're just picking and choosing which ones to pay attention to. And the other message here is that we cannot trust university investigative procedures. You certainly can't trust the athletic department when these cases arise. You can't trust the purported leaders of these programs. Trust no one. You cannot trust the local police departments in place like Tallahassee or Waco. So who should well, be... The fact that the Waco... You know, the district attorney's office there did its job is maybe well, the, the cops most shocking thing right. about the story. Yeah, the cops did not. It took the DA to do it. Yeah. So who should be the, the moral arbiters here? Who should be the overseers? I mean, it should be the university presidents, but we all know that their complicity in everything from protecting the athletic programs um, because of the revenue streams to protecting the structure of the NCAA and the way it treats athletes, you know, they're not to be trusted either. I mean, it's a, it is a terrible in situations like these, 
um, cocktail of incompetence and, uh, and, and, and mismanagement. Remember in the Penn State case, the conflict, Joe Paterno wanted to manage all discipline of his players inside the program and was pissed that, you know, the school president or other anyone outside of the, you know, football office was getting involved and, you know, had any say in what would happen when players transgressed. Um, one kind of connection that's been made here or claim that's been made is Baylor's kind of a striver football program. Pat Forty wrote about that on Yahoo that since Bryles came, they've gone from the bottom of college football to close to the top. They almost made the playoff last year and that they're maybe cutting corners to try to get to the top. But, you know, Alabama took a guy, Jonathan Taylor, who had a domestic violence accusation against him. He was arrested for it at the University of Georgia. The difference there, though, was that it was publicized at the time by Georgia. Alabama had to answer for bringing this guy in. Saban had to, Nick Saban had to say, this, we're giving this guy a second chance. The university president had to explain it. And so at least then there's accountability and everyone who goes to the school knows that this guy is going to be there and people can assess that decision. And then Taylor gets accused of domestic violence again at Alabama when he's there, gets kicked off the team. The charge was later dropped as part of a plea agreement, but Saban had to answer for that decision. Everyone knew what was going on at every step of the way. And the SEC, as a consequence of that, now has adopted a proposal that reads, a transfer student athlete who has been subject to official university or athletics department disciplinary action at any time during enrollment at any previous collegiate institution due to serious misconduct shall not be eligible for athletically related financial aid practice or competition in an SEC member institution. So the translation of that is that if you've been sanctioned for things including domestic violence, sexual assault, you're not allowed to transfer and get a scholarship at an SEC school. It's sad that such a rule has to exist, but now it does. Okay, last topic. In an article published a few weeks ago in ESPN the magazine titled The Confession of Arian Foster, Houston Texans running back Mr. Foster told Tim Kuhn that he does not believe in God. The profile is written like a coming out story with the chair of a group called Openly Secular saying he is the first active professional athlete, let alone star, to ever stand up in support of gaining respect for secular Americans. Foster is quoted as saying, everybody always says the same thing. You have to have faith. That's my whole thing. Faith isn't enough for me. For people who are struggling with that, they're nervous about telling their families or afraid of the backlash. Man, don't be afraid to be you. I was for years. Whether or not you think that it's a big deal for Foster to say this stuff publicly, it is clearly counter to mainstream American sports where teams have chaplains, players kneel to pray together at midfield, and guys give all the glory to God in post-game interviews. Uh, Mike, what did you think of the Foster coming out as secular? I thought it was interesting. I think that my prediction of what would happen, though interrupted by the fact that he had an injury, so maybe, and still does, so maybe we're not seeing the full effects of how this would play out, but I really wouldn't think this would have much of an effect, and so far it doesn't seem to have been, because even though NFL locker rooms, more so than other sports, but really all sports, are, are imbued with militarism and religiosity, you know, it seems to me that it's the sort of cover-your-ass religiosity 
curiosity, like we know we're involved in something dangerous, so we might as well say a prayer. I don't know that if you don't want Christianity to animate your every step inside the locker room or with a team, it needs to be. Um, so I didn't think that that would have so much of effect, and it hasn't. And obviously, everyone's thinking about the first who Michael Sam, the first openly gay player in a locker room, and you heard all the quotes about players saying, "Look, I know I've known I've played with gay players, and you play long enough, and people know about it." Not only is does it have to have been the case that people know they played with atheists, I bet you that plenty of atheists or agnostics, which technically, actually, if you parse Arian Foster's words, he's saying he's an agnostic. I guarantee you so many players would say, wait a minute, I didn't know this was a big deal. I didn't know I needed to do an interview about this. I was certainly openly agnostic or openly atheist. It just never got any attention. So I think it's an interesting thing to talk about, but I don't see why it would affect the Texans that much. Well, I think here's where it does affect pro sports. And and I think that is because it is an overwhelmingly non-secular environment. The NFL locker room, the college locker room, um, uh, you know, locker rooms everywhere. I mean, there are Bible study groups on teams, players openly solicit and try to recruit other players to come invite them to Bible study, not in a sort of proselytizing way necessarily, at least in my experience, but in a very open way. Hey, if you want to come, you're welcome to come. Um, there is a chaplain who is a very, very visible presence on professional teams. Um, there is mass on the day of a game. The Lord's Prayer is recited in locker rooms before games where the, where the team and in many cases, I think players who are reluctant to do so, but are afraid to, to walk away, hold hands and kneel in the center of the locker room while, and then everyone recites the Lord's prayer together. So it, it is a, you know, it can be, I think, an environment that is not welcoming and does make players, particularly, I think, players who are not necessarily stars or don't feel comfortable with their job security. It can make them feel uncomfortable. So Chris Cluey said in that Kuhn story, I thought it was interesting. He said it's like white male privilege. It's hard to see the role it plays if your entire life has been lived within that structure. If you're a religious guy in the NFL, you don't see the problem. Mm -hmm. You're the one in it. You have chapel or mass on Sunday before the game. You have Bible study during the week. It's built into the structure. Where I, I think that it makes sense that Arian Foster is this guy is because he came from uh, California. He came from, in, you know, the way he describes it, his family was encouraging of, you know, that he grew up in a Muslim background, but his father encouraged him to like, you know, find his, his own path. And, um, he went to the University of Tennessee, which was a place that does not encourage players to find their own path when it comes to <laughs> religion. And this is something that doesn't really get surfaced publicly and there are occasional things like when Clemson coach Dabo Sweeney like plans to go to a fundraiser for an anti-gay group, then it gets covered a little bit. But just the unbelievable pervasiveness in, mm -hmm. of Christianity and Southern college football programs. Foster describes the coach at the time, Phil Fulmer of Tennessee, essentially requiring players to go to church. And when Foster said, I don't want to go, him basically being bullied into going and going to these white churches and how it was kind of a weird experience. Um, a predominantly black team being dragged to a white mega church in the suburbs. And there have been really good stories. There's one in the Charlotte Observer about these chaplains and college football programs and 
the very tenuous separation of church and state here. And there's an organization called the Freedom From Religion Foundation that has filed some lawsuits and is trying to get rid of chaplains in these programs. These public um, schools, of course. Yeah, public schools. And Tommy Bowden, who was the coach at uh, Clemson, when he was talking about his philosophy towards uh, church and religion on his, his team and his program, he said, make it as mandatory as you can make it. And there are coaches like Bowden, like uh, Dabo Sweeney, that sell Christianity as part of their programs. And if you're a guy like Arian Foster, how could you not find that oppressive? And, you know, I think in the NFL, it's way, way easier. I'm sure it's way, way easier. You're actually getting mm -hmm. paid. Well, yeah, your scholarship isn't dependent on you fitting into the team. Okay, there are a bunch of other things going on. One is that, you know, the Pew studies show that uh, Americans under the age of 25 are much more likely to be either spiritual but not religious or just unaffiliated, which is their catch-all term for agnostic, atheist, or having no real religion. Um, so... It's not surprising to me that Arian Foster, who's a young man and who is actually, he's, I think, 26 or 27, but he would be in this demographic. And it's also not surprising that coaches who are older would impose this on players. I think a bunch of things are going on. Football's a dangerous sport. And so you pray and you don't want to get hurt. And also there are so many things associated with football that are just antisocial. Um, obviously, athletics and teamwork, I mean, if we're just going to go by the broom if we're just going to go by the platitudes, those two things are fine. But getting amped up to, to injure someone or to, you know, crash into someone with your body because you're not at war just for fun, essentially, or the entertainment of others, that's not an inherent social good. So you marry it to religion and you give it a little bit of good. And so this is why, you know, a lot of these older coaches and a lot of players, but I think a lot of coaches too, it gives them an out. So much of what they're doing has no social worth um, or at least is, you know, you spend so much time dwelling in a mental space of trying to impose your physical will on others, not a very Christian mindset. So you have to imbue things with your Christianity to sort of even it out. But I think in the future, just as our society becomes more secular, sports figures are going to become more secular. And the big thing that's going to happen... What I said in the beginning was I have thought this was always true, and that's how I look at the Pew studies, too, that there's been a large portion of people who have been secular. They're actually admitting it more than they have been. I think it's growing as well, but I think more people are willing to give it a name and admit it, and I think that, in general, is where the trend is going. Another thing to note is that comparing black people to white people in America, white people are more likely to be unaffiliated, and we talked, you know, you talked about University of Tennessee being a largely African-American team team, you know, professional sports, basketball and football especially, are majority African Americans. So that's one reason why sports are uh, more imbued with religiosity as well. To get back to part of the conversation we were having about Baylor, you know, whose job is it to impose secular standards at public universities, not the Baylor's public university, but more generally? Um, and it should be the university president. That Freedom From Religion Foundation report that you cited, Josh, which the uh, Washington Post wrote about last week, quoted um, the chaplain at Georgia as saying, who, by the way, is the brother-in-law of the head coach, Mark Richt, 
as saying, our message at Georgia doesn't change, and that's to preach Christ and him crucified. It's to win championships for the state of Georgia and win souls for the kingdom of God. So we're going to continue down that path. Yeah, I don't, Mike, I don't think you can explain this by looking at kind of numbers in terms of adherence in general in society. These are, this is religion imposed in a kind of structural way. Um, an institutional way. They're a group, you know, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes started in the 50s and is an incredibly big and powerful presence at schools. There are chapters on campuses. There's something called Baseball Chapel that started in the 70s that ministers to players. And so these are not, you know, pl and, you know, all power to anyone who wants to worship in whatever way that they want to, but to claim that this is just kind of a natural outgrowth of the demographics of these teams and these players, I think, is not correct. I mean, it, back to Arian Foster, it does seem like it would be incredibly oppressive to be in one of these football programs and not, you know, believe in Christ. And, you know, Tommy Bowden said in that story I was mentioning that he was proud that only one player missed services in nine years. Like if you look at any polls or surveys, you think there was only one player in the Clemson program who didn't and does identify that include, I mean, as were Christian? There, were there any, right, were there any Jews on Clemson's football team? Were there oh, any Jews aren't that Muslims? Great at football, so. yeah. yeah, they might be. Some of, you know, <laughs> basketball? <laughs> any, any further thoughts? Yeah, I think that religiosity, Christianity is one of the few things that have nothing to do with sports that's allowed in big time college football. You know, they don't talk about even doing charity work or, or Habitat for Humanity as much as they talk about going to Christian services. It's the one thing that has penetrated. And it's because of the psychological reasons that I've been saying, you know, when Bobby Bowden, not Tommy Bowden, when his programs of Florida State were just running roughshod over the rule book, he was a big Christian, always was. It was helpful in his recruiting, you know, the mothers were attracted to at least him saying that. And he seemed to live his life by Christian ideals. I don't know. I think it definitely is... I don't know if oppressive is the word. It's a culture that's permeating, but I haven't seen... You would say that it would be better to be able to just opt out of that without incidents, but I think that there's so much about being part of a big-time college football program where you can't show any amount of individuality. Maybe it's because religion has a First Amendment protection that we won't impose it upon you, and when it's all but de facto imposed upon you, it seems wrong. But how much free thinking of any sort can be done under Phil Fulmer or one of these you know, big-time college coaches? I doubt it. Uh, one last quick point, and I think it's important to recognize the historical roots of religion in sports. I mean, in the, in the 19th century, sports were viewed as antithetical to religion. They were not considered to be something that a religious person should participate in, particularly competitive sports. That began to change in the late 19th century, early 20th century with the rise of muscular Christianity and and, and sports was then welcomed into the fold of religion and used as an outgrowth of religion. Yeah, I guess the thing that bothers me, Mike, about your question, I, I totally agree that you don't have any freedom to really do what you want or think what you want in a program like this, but it just seems so unnecessary. Right. I mean, the, you know, to the extent that a football program exists and, and that a player is in it, then, you know, you're in there because, you know, you're a good football player and everything that 
you're, you're not supposed to think for yourself or do for yourself because you're all, you know, you're being pointed in a direction to win more football games, whether that's right or wrong. And this just the like claim that, oh, we're going to like guide you spiritually too. I mean, just like get over yourselves, man. And it's just like another reason to kind of connect back to our other topic that football programs are just treated like they're not part of universities um, and like they don't have to follow the rules. And yeah, you can have a chaplain forcing or basically forcing players to go to church services um, just because, you know, that's it's the football program. Yeah, the robotics club, man. <laughs> the religious requirements are steep. Super steep. All right. It's time for after balls. I'm going to play a little song for you guys. Here we go. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. End over in neither left nor to right. Straight through the heart of them righteous uprights. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. I think there's a big market for either anachronistic football plays done by Jesus, or maybe there can be like score me a rouge Jesus for Canadian Christian football fans. Uh, that song, as you might have guessed, was called Drop Kick Me Jesus, parentheses, through the goalposts of life, close parentheses, performed by Bobby Bear, written by Paul Kraft, who was nominated for a Grammy for Best Country Song in 1977. Uh, slow year for country songs. <laughs> in an interview in 1978, Kraft... Or a good year for drop kicks. <laughs> Uh, Kraft said, the songwriter, I knew some people would call it sacrilegious, but some people thought it was funny. I think that's good. Got to hear both sides. Paul Kraft died in 2014, but his spirit will live on whenever we refer to football plays that do not exist anymore, as done by Jesus. Uh, Mike. Yeah. What's, what's your Paul Kraft? I would like to commission an album uh, in the spirit of the Buckner and Garcia album where everyone knows Pac-Man Fever, but do you know every song on that album was inspired by a video game from Dig Dug to Caterpillar? So what I'd like to do is assign the, the original Paul Kraft uh, singers to go and find some more obscure religious figures and pair them with obscure football plays like... Um, Bathsheba and the Fumble Ruski. I'm just going to throw that out there. So I watched the Amy Schumer film Trainwreck. There is a big sports line through it. I surmise because Judd Apatow told Amy, look, to get the men in, you got to do a little sports stuff. All this girl stuff, that's fine, but you got to get the boys because Apatow knows boys. So in it, Bill Hader plays a doctor and all his clients are big sports fans. At one point, Bill Hader is stitching up Colin Quinn. And I think to distract him, that's what Colin Quinn says, he asks him, all right, give me the nine professional sports teams that don't end in S. And immediately, and in the, I think in the movie, Quinn says a few of them, I'm pretty sure he says the Red Sox and the White Sox, and he comes up with the Colorado Avalanche. And I was glad he said Avalanche, because I wouldn't have thought of all those other NHL teams like the Wild and the Lightning. Then, of course, the Heat, the Jazz, the Thunder, the Magic. So... There's your answer to the Bill Hader question. What's unanswerable, however, is the sports timeline as presented in the movie. Because LeBron James is playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers. 
this year's version or the most recent iteration of the Cleveland Cavaliers, right? Not his original broke into the league with the pre-Miami Heat Cleveland Cavaliers. And yet they're playing a New York Knicks team with a healthy Amari Stoudemire with guys who were on the Knicks two years ago. So they must have filmed those scenes. They certainly filmed those scenes out of order where you have the Knicks team from two years ago and a LeBron James from this year. Also, I would posit that the depiction of LeBron James, some of it is for comic effect, but to have him be able to interact with people in a restaurant without 4,000 people mobbing him, or to have him do a charity event where he sits down next to Amy Schumer, has a conversation in a big crowd, no one looks at them, and then LeBron gets up and leaves. I mean, to me, that was the most implausible part of the movie. Uh, The way they depict it, I know that it would be funny to pretend LeBron James is cheap. That's a joke of the movie. But they pretend LeBron James is famous a la Walt Bellamy famous or how you imagined, you know, maybe a sports star or an NBA star in the 1970s, semi-obscure famous. Obviously, I mean, ESPN just had a report that said one LeBron James tweet is worth $140,000. And they have him as more or less depicted as a tall civilian. That was my one complaint. Otherwise, very funny movie. Stefan, what is your Paul Craft? Before I get to my Paul Craft, I want to update last week's afterball. Came to the bottom, got to the bottom of the Canadian Football League seven-yard snap. Some very friendly and helpful Canadian Twitterers and Facebook posters alerted me to the fact that in Canadian football, there is a one-yard neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. So a seven-yard snap is, in effect, eight yards from the opposing line. So there you go. Thank you, Canada. All right. The New York Yankees on Sunday retired uniform number 46, which was worn by the reasonably good pitcher Andy Pettit. That came a day after the team retired number 20, which was worn by better than average catcher Jorge Posada. And earlier this year, it hung up decent outfielder Bernie Williams, number 51. When the Yankees soon retire number two, which was worn by the milk toast shortstop Derek Jeter, they will have stopped using 21 numbers. The Yankees have taken the numeral retirement ceremony to epically self-congratulatory and commercially obscene heights with the Monument Park plaque, the cavalcade of X's, ladies and gentlemen, Roy White, tearful speeches, commemorative game balls, certificates from Bronx congressmen, overlong video tributes, and for the love of God, John Sterling and Michael Kay. It's an appalling spectacle, except of course when in 1985, the team retired Phil Rizzuto's number 10, gave him a cow because holy cow was Rizzuto's catchphrase. And the cow stepped on Rizzuto's foot and Rizzuto fell down. That was awesome. Retiring numbers is arguably asinine. Why not instead just remember who wore a particular number by continuing to look at the number itself, by recognizing the numerical trail of greatness? For me, number six on the Yankees isn't Joe Torre, for whom it's retired. It is Roy White, whose pigeon-toed batting stance I can imitate. And number 20 isn't Posada, but Horace Clark, 1970s shitty second baseman, who had a terrible wide stance, which I can also imitate. Number one is an asshole player manager, Billy Martin. It's my idol, Bobby Mercer. Taking numbers out of circulation might be perceived as a way of honoring some player or coach who happened to do well, if increasingly less so, wearing a particular shirt. But it's also an insult to the memory of those who wore it perhaps only slightly less well. As far as I can tell, the first sports number to be retired was 77, worn by footballer Red Grange at the University of Illinois. That happened in 1925, right after Grange's senior season. The first pro number to be shelved was the 6 
worn by Ace Bailey of the Toronto Maple Leafs. That happened in 1934 after Bailey nearly died from a check by Eddie Shore of the Boston Bruins. The Yankees, of course, were the first baseball team to decommission a number, Lou Gehrig's four, but it didn't happen, as you might guess, during Gehrig's luckiest man speech at Yankee Stadium on July 4th, 1939, a few weeks after Gehrig the human had retired because of the mysterious disease that would bear his name. Instead, it took place during the offseason on January 6th, 1940. As part of an announcement by team president Ed Barrow of honors for Gehrig, including that he wouldn't be released but placed on the club's voluntary retired list, which I guess was important, and that no one would ever use his locker again. It wasn't played as big news. The New York Times put the story about about retiring the big numeral four, which adorned the broad back of the famous first sacker who fell victim to a form of paralysis. At the bottom of the front page of the Sunday sports section, there were 10 other stories above it. Among them, Optimism Keynote as 25,000 attend annual boat show. Giants schedule 34 spring games. Cardinalis defeats Royal Blue by half length at Tropical Park. And Wolf easily gains in Martin Squash. The Times' eight-paragraph story did note how unusual retiring a number was. Even when the glamorous and spectacular Babe Ruth retired from the Yankees, no one thought to put his familiar number three out of circulation. The number was given to George Selkirk the following spring, and Twinkle Toes has been wearing it ever since. Ruth had retired in 1935. The team didn't get rid of number three on Babe Ruth's day in 1947 after he had fallen ill with cancer. That happened in 1948 when he returned for the celebration of the 25th anniversary of Yankee Stadium. When Ruth died two months later, his open casket was displayed in the stadium rotunda for two days and 77,000 fans came to pay their respects. Let's see Derek Jeter top that. Josh, what's your Paul Kraft? Last year, the Chicago White Sox started selling a 12-scoop banana split for the bargain price of $17. To fit all of that 12-scoopiness, it was served in a full-size baseball helmet, which is a bastardization of the Helmet Sunday concept. The Helmet Sunday is traditionally placed in a mini helmet Mm -hmm. designed specifically to accommodate two scoops of ice cream. I know this because I was a regular consumer of those Sundays at Baskin-Robbins, and the helmet Sunday heyday of the 1980s. Let's hear from my old friend Scoop Wilson, Baskin Robbins 1980s era kitty helmet Sunday pitchman. Scoop Wilson here with the play by play on the season's biggest baseball event Baskin Robbins Baseball Helmet Sundays. A double play with your favorite ice cream flavors. There's action on the mound now as a flight is poured on and the topics hit home. Best of all, you get your Sunday served in a mini baseball helmet. Choose your favorite teams or collect all 26. Baskin Robbins, you're batting a thousand. A two scoop Sunday serves in a mini baseball helmet. And the helmet's free. What? The helmet's free? It's not just the helmet that's free, Mike. You also get all those bad baseball puns for no additional cost. <laughs> Fact, you have to pay not to hear them. Baskin Robbins did uh, not invent the mini sunday uh dairy queen i found an ad from 1976 for a 69 cent helmet sunday uh the helmet sunday goes even uh, further back than that because the internet exists there is a guy who has written a history of the ice cream sunday helmet graphic designer eric lichtenberg reports that a plastic company called lake industries started producing full-size replica helmets in 1965 that a subsidiary 
called Sports Products Corp. started making these Sunday-sized helmets in 1970 or 1971, putting a flat spot on the top of the helmet so you could set it down on the table while eating. There's a lot more detail on Lichtenberg's website. So if you want to know when they started screen printing the helmets rather than using stickers and when SPC lost the licensing rights to Photoball Inc., then you can go to town. I do want to focus on one later entry in the timeline, though. 2008, according to Lichtenberg's history, a new style Sunday helmet is introduced. This new helmet has a taller bowl but yet remains close to the original style Sunday helmet. This may be the new direction of Sunday helmets. The manufacturer is unknown. And the helmets were for the New York Mets and the Brooklyn Cyclones. Mystery. Sunday helmet mystery. I have no idea if this new, st- if this new direction of Sunday helmets has continued. Who the manufacturer is? Stefan? I have some questions. Yeah, I used to collect the mini Sunday helmet in the 1970s. Were they clearly marked collect... not for protective purposes? <laughs> I also used to collect the full-sized yes, yes. helmets, plastic helmets that were marked not for protective purposes, and they had that brown plastic adjustable band, the headband inside, to make mm-hmm. the helmet fit. So my question is, with the gigantic, the 12 scooper, do they have the flat bottom, or are you getting a regular plastic helmet that you can reuse and wear in public quite, we need quite to, handsomely. We need to hear from listeners who've had the Chicago White Sox 12 scooper. I do not know the answer. For an extra $3, it could be John Olrood's actual on-the-field playing first base helmet. <laughs> well, I do have the answer to questions that our listeners probably are not asking, which is where can you buy Ice Cream Sunday helmets yourself? You can go to icecreamsundayhelmets.com. You can buy them on Amazon. They're made by Rawlings, although be warned that the reviews indicate that they're smaller than you'd expect. You can also buy vintage ones on eBay, where most of the product listings insist that the helmets don't have cracks and that they come from smoke and pet-free homes. That, <laughs> that last one is important if you want to eat out of it, because I did find a blog post where someone notes that the ice cream Sunday helmet is the perfect size if you want to put a helmet on your cat's head. That's the end. End it. It's a good ending. Book it. We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts and leave us a comment and a rating. It helps us in our perpetual war against the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. If you're a fan of Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast on Facebook, unsubscribe from them. Zach Dinerstein produced today's show. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelma Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.